Last night I was uh, excited to be a part of uh, the Chick fundraiser dinner. If you missed it, it was a fantastic night. The fellowship hall was full of people, and, and lots of our teenagers were, were serving. I was so, uh, they were so excited about uh, raising funds to go to Chick, which is a fantastic conference where they're going to learn more about Jesus Christ. And as I was sitting at the table with a couple of guys from the church, the women were on this end, the guys were on this end, we just started to chatter and began to tell a few jokes. And one of the guys reminded me of a joke that I said in a sermon oh, several years back. I'd totally forgotten about it until he reminded me. And so I thought sometimes laughter is a part of healing. And so I'll begin with this, and you can tell me if it's a good joke or not. There was a doctor, a, a lawyer, and a pastor. And they were great friends, and they had a very friendly competition. They competed over everything. And so one day they were out hunting for deer, and they were walking through the woods, talking about who was the best hunter, when all of a sudden they saw this huge trophy buck pop up in the meadow right in front of them, maybe 30, 40 feet away, just standing there looking at him, not moving, just kind of saying, here, shoot me. The three guys at instant saw him, pulled their guns to their shoulders at the same time, pulled the trigger at the same time, the shots went off at the same time, the deer drops to the ground. Well, as they were running to the deer, they were, they were arguing about, hey, my, my bull is the one that killed the deer. No, mine is the one that killed the deer. No, mine is the one that killed the deer. They got close to the deer, and, and the doctor said, I know how we'll solve this. I'm a doctor. I'll do an autopsy, and we'll be able to determine who killed the deer. And so he knelt down by the deer's head, looked at it for just a second, popped up, sighed, and said, it was a pastor's bullet who killed the deer. And, and the lawyer said, well, how do you know? He said, well, it's just like his sermons, in one ear and out the other. <laughs> so, there we go. All right. I was going to put Pastor David's name in there or Pastor Mark's, you know, as the hunter, but uh, that wouldn't be fair. So, well, anyhow, this morning, I do hope that the message we're going to give you will go in one ear, but it will stick in your heart, in your mind, and will shape and transform uh, you as we start to move forward in a sermon series for the book of Hebrews. And today's message that we start off is, if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, it's a really fantastic book. It really holds up Christ, and it's, it's a fantastic book, but it's pretty complex. And so you have to really kind of work at it to draw out some of the truths and to understand what's going on. And so today is kind of a more of a doctrinal sermon, um, so it's a little bit different. So I'm going to ask you to stick with me through it, and it'll sort of lay the foundation for the coming weeks as we look at Hebrews. Now, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that a couple weeks ago, <coughs> excuse me, Pastor David finished a series on some of the, the basics of the faith, the faith, a great series, and he picked out six basics of the faith from Hebrews, Hebrews 6, uh, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to stay in Hebrews, but we're going to broaden our focus and begin today in chapter 1. Now, it's always good before you start into a, a, a book of the Bible, it's to kind of get a little bit of context. And so just a few things about the book of Hebrews. First, it was written around uh, 65 or so A.D., which is about 30 years, roughly, after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. We don't know for sure who the author of Hebrews was, but there are many clues which help us draw out an outline of what type of person he was. For instance, Hebrews is packed full of all sorts of Old Testament quotations and, and imagery about the, the sacrificial system, about the temple, uh, about the priesthood, which means that the author most assuredly was a Jewish Christian. Hebrews was also written in the Greek language, which meant that he was an educated man because Greek was a language that educated people would use. Not everybody could write it or speak it. And the letter really is a, a sermon in letter form, so we know that the, the author 
uh, was a, a, a speaker or a pastor. We also know for sure that it was centered in Rome. And Rome, of course, was the center of the Roman Empire. And at that time, Rome would have been a melting pot of all sorts of people and nationalities, ethnicities, religious religions, and worldviews because the policy of the Roman Empire was when they would conquer a people, they would just kind of incorporate it all together, just kind of fold it all into a mixing bowl, and it would just kind of be one more addition to the, to the cultural pot. So it would be sort of like today if you said we have a, we have a small uh, community and we're going to throw in a bunch of people, a group of Muslims from Iraq, some Christians from the U.S., uh, an atheist from Spain, some Hindus from uh, India, and a voodoo doctor from Haiti. You throw them all together and, and kind of see what happens in that mix. And that was sort of what was going on in the Roman Empire. There was no one dominant religion. Which meant that in first century Rome, the question wasn't, like we often ask today, is, God, do you have something to say to me? It was, which God has something to say to me? A citizen of the Roman Empire wouldn't, would, would have asked, do I listen to the Greek gods or the Roman gods or do I listen to the Persian gods or do I listen to the Christian god? And the Christians in the early church in the first few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection would have been going against the tide, so to speak, to say, uh, excuse me, in the midst of all these gods, all these religions, all these different ways of, you, of going to God, excuse me, this is, you're all wrong and this is the one true God, our God. That would be hard to do, wouldn't it? It would have been hard to stand up in a culture where everything goes, where many believe that all paths, all religions lead to God, to stand up and say, no, there's only one path, one God, our God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Does that sound anything like maybe what we experience increasingly in our world and in our culture? And so you see, the book of Hebrews was written to help those early believers, but also us today, to know how to stand for the faith we have in Jesus Christ, to persevere in following him and asserting and believing that God speaks most clearly and perfectly through the person of Jesus Christ. Have you ever felt small and powerless compared next to somebody or something? Remember the first time I had that feeling? I was a preschooler. Actually, my earliest memory, probably three or four, and we were on vacation in Idaho. My mom has an older brother who lives up there, and, and he's a lumberjack, and he's okay. And um, anybody get that no reference? Okay, a few, a few of you did. Okay, anyhow. He's a lumberjack, and, um, and he has a family of five or eight, and there's, we had a family of five. And we went to uh, this, this place, the largest tree in, in Idaho. And um, we had a picnic there. We walked up to this tree. And I remember standing there. I'm three years old, looking up, and this tree is enormous, 200 feet over uh, high in the air, and I just felt so small and, and so puny. And, and we tried to put our arms around. It took all 13 of us with our arms outstretched, uh, holding hands to get all the way around the trunk of that tree. Just huge. That was my first experience in feeling small and powerless compared to something or someone. Another experience I remember was back in high school playing football. And we, uh, we played against a running back who was 6'3 and weighed about 270. And he, he was, was always, he ran a sub- 11 second, 100 meters. Huge. Thankfully for us, it was just straight ahead speed, so you kind of hit him down here and he'd fall. And we won the game. But I do remember tackling him felt like trying to tackle my dad when I was a, a grade schooler. He just was so much better and bigger and stronger than everybody else on the field. He ended up playing D1 football. 
Do you remember coming across somebody who was so far above your level of skill or talent? Just a few years ago, uh, I remember going to see Wynton Marsalis play trumpet, the jazz trumpeter, play at the Steeple Theater. And um, he was incredible, just amazing what the things he could do with that trumpet. And uh, I was a decent trumpet player in high school, and I would have been embarrassed to even attempt a scale in front of him. You know, we've all had those experiences, right? When we, uh, no matter how big we are, no matter how strong we are, no matter how skilled, talented, musically, athletically, no matter how smart, sooner or later we're going to run into someone or something that gives us a reality check, that gives us perspective of where we stand in regard to someone or something much, much bigger, much, much better than we are. And that's how the book of Hebrews starts. God speaks through the first few verses of this letter. And if you revise perspective, he says that Jesus is bigger and better and more powerful and more beautiful than anyone or anything else. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various, <coughs> excuse me, various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to ours, to theirs. So the major message and theme of Hebrews is clear from the very start. It's a theme of Christ's sufficiency and Christ's supremacy. Christ, we're told, through the next few chapters is, is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. He is the perfect sacrifice. Christ, we're told, is better than the Old Covenant. Through his blood, he has made it possible for us to have a relationship with the Father. Christ, we're told, is the author and perfecter of our faith. He allows us to start our faith. He starts new life, and then he sustains it in us, and he promises to bring to completion that which he has begun in us. Christ, we're told, is our high priest. He intercedes for us. He understands our temptations. Christ is so far superior to us, Hebrews says, to everything else. It's not even close. It's sort of like the gap between, say, the lake at Lakewood Park, you know, that small kind of puny little thing, compared to the power and the majesty and the size and the scope of the Pacific Ocean. Not in the same ballpark, not even the same universe, not even close. And here in chapter 1, the author of Hebrews begins his theme of Christ's supremacy by telling us that Christ is far better than the angels. That's what all these Old Testament quotations are about. Verse 5, you are my son. For to what of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Verse 6, and again when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The author of Hebrews uses Old Testament quotes to state Jesus' superiority over the angels. Now, for us, that seems obvious. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we know that angels aren't. So, of course, we would think that God is, Jesus is, is superior to the angels. But back in the first century A.D., angels were a part of many religion, religions. And, in fact, in certain branches of the Jewish faith that these believers had left to follow Jesus, it was emphasized as well. Now, we don't hear a lot about angels in sermons. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But just to give you a sense of what the Bible says about angels, how magnificent they are and the things that they could do and God, what God created them for, I'm going to, in comparison to Jesus Christ, I'm going to share briefly about them. 
Angels, we're told, are created beings. And I know Pastor David mentioned this a couple weeks ago when he talked about the resurrection and what would happen to us after we die. Most of us have a wrong, many people in our culture have a wrong idea of where angels come from. Like this uh, man in a, in a story, he was sitting in a pub, and one says to the other, my mother-in-law is an angel, and he says, you're lucky, mine is still alive. Okay. Just for the record, I like my mother-in-law very much. If you see her, tell her that. But angels are, 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 are created beings. They are, they're not godlike. They're not omnipresent. They can't be everywhere at the same time. They're not omnipotent. They're not all-powerful, and they're not omniscient. They're not all-knowing. They're spiritual beings. They don't have physical bodies, but they do sometimes appear visibly. An angel appears to Mary and Joseph. An angel appears to Joshua. An angel appears to the women at, at, at Jesus' tomb. An angel rescues Paul and Silas from the prison in Acts 5. And in Hebrews 13:2, it says that, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. So angels are spiritual beings, but they may sometimes be right here among us. Angels are innumerable. Hebrews 12.22 says, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful worship. Revelation 5.11 says that when John has a vision in, in Revelation of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, seated high on the throne, he says, I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. That's 100 million. If you're doing the math, roughly the population of Mexico. Angels, we're told, are superior to human beings. Psalm 8. David says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. But though angels are presently superior to us, 1 Corinthians 6.3 says that someday human beings will have a place superior to them. In the Bible, there are all sorts of angels. There are cherubim who guard the holiness of God. They're found at the Ark of the Covenant. They're found at the east gate of the Garden of Eden. They guard God's holiness. There are seraphim. They're the angels that worship God. We see them in um, Isaiah's vision of worship. There are archangels like Michael and Gabriel. And we have guardian angels who we hear um, uh, watch out for children. Jesus said, um, For I tell you that angels in heaven always see the face of my children in heaven as they watch upon the little ones. So as, as powerful and amazing as these angels are that we see in Scripture, Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is far, far more superior to them. In the Scripture, when people see angels, they fall flat on their face in terror and fear. Um, but yet Jesus, Hebrews says, is much more awesome. See what Jesus is and what he does in verses 2 to 3 that make him so superior. Verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustain all things by his powerful word. And focus on that last phrase, Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. Now you've probably seen these, these machines, these blowers, the air blowers. You see them at science museums or fairs where they blow a pillar of air straight up and there's a ball kind of floating it's slowly spinning on top of that pillar of air. You've seen those probably. And from a distance, you look at them, and it looks like it's just sitting there. There's nothing underneath it, nothing above it, no visible supports at all. You know, from a distance, sometimes in our human experience, our limited human view, we look at our world, and we see the world spinning in space, nothing beneath it, nothing 
around it, not, no visible supports, but the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ created that world, put it in place, and holds it in place. And sometimes when we look at our lives, and we look at our world, and we see brokenness, and disappointment, and failure, and sin, and injustice, and we think, what in the world? This is chaos. What is holding this together? And we look at the scripture, and we know that Jesus Christ sustains all things. As a pastor, sometimes people will ask me this question, where is God in the midst of all the evil in the world? We see genocide, crime, injustice, famine, hunger, corruption. Where is God in the midst of all of this? That's a good question. It's a question for another sermon, and it was much the same response. But part of how I would respond is that God is in the midst of it, and that if he were to remove himself from it, completely pull his spirit and his presence out of our world, our world would collapse, collapse and literally become hell on earth. Like a, like a hot air balloon that collapses without the, the helium and the flames be blowing up, our world would collapse completely without Jesus filling us and filling our world and lifting us and sustaining us. Jesus sustains everything. Colossians 1.15 tells us, He is the image of the invisible God. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. So Jesus is supreme in that not only does He sustain all things, but also we see in this short passage, that Jesus is supreme because he has created all things. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so what that means is that the sun and the moon and the stars, the galaxies, the universe, everything that lives in the, in the air or the sea or the or land, human beings, all the elements, earth, wind, and fire, even angels, all have been made by Jesus Christ because the create, he is greater than them because the created cannot be greater than the creator. The author continues to build his, his case. Verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You know, I was at the optometrist the other, optometrist the other day for an eye exam. It had been a while, and I'm getting to the age where I kind of do this once in a while when I'm reading. And I and, uh, wanted to see if I needed to change my prescriptions. And, and um, he said I didn't have to. But the way he determined that was he used all sorts of machines and instruments and eye charts and a lot of bright lights. And there was one light that was really bright, and he got really close, and he held it for I don't know how long in front of my eyes. My eyes began to water. And, and after a little while, I couldn't tell the difference between where the, the brightness ended and the light itself began. They were... They, they were one and the same. And the author of Hebrews is telling us, in a sense, that that's the way it is with God the Father and God the Son. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's of the same in essence. And when we look intently at Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ we see in the Bible, the miracles he performed, the truth he taught, um, the, the, his love demonstrated for us on the cross, his victory over death and his resurrection, when we look at the, at the Jesus Christ intently that we see in scriptures we we can't determine where jesus ends and the father begins they're one and the same jesus is 
the radiance of God's glory. He's preeminent, he's superior, he's better because he is in fact God. In the early part of the 20th century, the well-known preacher G. Campbell Morgan stated that when the church ceases to lift Jesus Christ high, to the height where all people can see him, the church becomes useless and a fraud. Let me repeat that. When the church ceases to lift Christ to the height where all people can see him, the church becomes useless and a fraud. And we face much of the same pressures and cultural dynamics that the early Christians who first read the, the letter of Hebrews did. Many people will ask us, we may ask ourselves, who are we to tell others that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life? Who are we to say that, that he is the one true God? In the view of all these other religions and worldviews, who are we to say that, that Jesus is better? But if we believe that he is, and I believe with all my heart that he is, and I believe the scripture shows us that he is, and when you study different faiths, you, faiths, you see that Jesus Christ is the one way and truth and life. If we believe that he is, and he is the one who can save us, and he is the one who can help us, if we do not proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as better, as supreme, as sufficient, then we are useless and frauds, uncaring, unloving, and selfish. You see, when we lift Jesus Christ high, people are healed. When we lift Jesus Christ high, people are, are helped. When we lift Christ high, they're, they're sustained and they're, and they're guided. And when we lift people high, when we lift Jesus Christ high, people are, are saved. Jesus Christ is better. He's superior. And this passage challenges us as individuals and as a church. No matter the circumstances in our church, no matter the circumstances in our life, to focus on Jesus to exalt him and lift him high because when we do, we find healing, we find hope, we find forgiveness, we find grace, we find power, we find salvation. Our challenge is to lift Christ high to the height where all people will see that he truly is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and God, we come before you as, as broken people, uh, humbled before you, keenly aware of our faults and flaws and sins. And Lord, we, as we come to this table, we remember and we know that uh, the only way is the way of Jesus the only way to assuage guilt, the only way to extend forgiveness, the only way to find hope in the midst of despair, the only way to find victory, the only way to persevere, the only way to overcome, Lord, is through Jesus Christ. And so we come to the foot of the cross where we see Jesus Christ lifted high, exalted for all the world to see. We look up at Jesus, we look intently at him, and we see you, Father. Jesus is the full radiance of your glory. Jesus is the exact representation of who you are. And so we look to him 
Lord Jesus, as we now partake, we pray that as we take the bread and we drink from the cup, that we'd find strength and healing from you. We lift you high, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.